Thank you, Casey. Good morning again. Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 4. My ambition this morning uh, was to get through verse 38. Alas, I will not achieve my ambition, so we're going to look at verses 31 to 34 today. Uh, There's just so much in here I I feel like we need to consider uh, by God's grace. And so I'm going to read verses 31 to 38 just to get sort of the near context, but I want to want to focus, and as Lloyd-Jones loves to say, call your attention to verses 31 to 34. So let us hear now God's, the Word of God is inspired by His Spirit. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought Him something to eat? And Jesus said to him, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. This is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. May he add his blessings to this reading of it. Let's pray together. Father, what we need more than anything else this morning is to hear from you. Well, we don't need to hear from a clever preacher or a comedian From an athlete, we don't need to hear homespun stories. What we need is your inspired, inerrant, authoritative word to transform our lives by the power of your spirit. So God, I pray that I would not in any way hinder that, that you'd use me as a vessel to proclaim your truth for your glory. We pray, God, that you do in us what you alone can do, and that's to transform us from one level of glory to another, as Paul put it. And if there be those who are lost here, and no doubt there is, God, I pray that you would begin a work today of drawing them, convicting them of sin and unrighteousness, drawing them irresistibly, draw them, drawing them effectually to yourself unto salvation. I think about live for your glory all the days of their lives, Lord. We pray you be honored in this hour. We pray this in the strong name. Jesus Christ, the Lord. Amen. Well, in my years as a, a pastor, I've been asked a lot of questions. I'm kind of in the question business in some ways, ultimate questions, and we love that. You know, I often start sermons with questions, but I think the most prevalent question I've been asked over the years, and and, and often it's from younger people, is what is God's will for my life? What is it God would have me to do in X situation? They'll give me a, a, for instance, you know, and then they'll say, well, what should I do? What is God's will? And so that, obviously, as God's people, that's something that consumes us, or should, I think. And many Christians say they want God's will for their lives. I think if if all of us were, you know, in our more spiritual moments, we would say that we want God's will for our lives. And they declare that they're leaving these matters up to God and say, we're just doing this, we're leaving it up to God. But when God reveals to them what they are to do, they continue trying to find His will. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had where this is God's will, maybe not who you're supposed to marry, where you go to school, whatever, but this is God's will according to scriptures, and they do something else. 
They continue trying to find his will, as if God has misplaced it or something, right? As if it's kind of a shell game. You know, you see at the ballpark, you do the shell game on the board out there, and you say, oh, you know, number two, that's where the, you win a hot dog or whatever. If you get that, well, we treat God's will that way. You kind of, as if he's hiding it from us. People get their way. It doesn't bring them to the satisfaction they'd hoped for. And so they become desperately unhappy or they remain desperately unhappy. And maybe that's you. Or maybe you've been there. No doubt you have if you've walked with God very long. Because when it comes right down to it, many times I think we just want God to conform to our will. To kind of give his imprimatur to our program. To kind of set off and say, yeah, Jeff, that sounds like a good plan and I'm going to do it that way. I know I can be that way. We're fickle, aren't we? And sadly, I think most people, including many in the church, and I think I'm speaking, confident I'm speaking to mostly Christians here. So I'm, I'm sad that most of us never learn that true satisfaction, true peace in life, the ability to sort of keep your composure no matter what the, the situation, I believe comes from yielding totally to God's will and God's service. Totally. We used to put it this way in church, being sold out, right? You'd say, boy, he's really sold out as a Christian. That means that this is the person we see as being entirely submitted to God's will, whatever that is. So we come to Jesus. We've been talking about Jesus, the Son of God, who had no such issue as we see in today's text. He had no such issue with doing the will of the Father. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is fully God, yes, but fully man, And so as a man, he came to do the Father's will. And I have really one major point. I know this is very un-Southern Baptist-like of me to have the audacity to have one point. You say, well, that's probably a shorter sermon, and you're probably right. But it's really this. But it's because I think no matter how much we hear it, we still don't really embrace it in our hearts. But it's this. Jesus did the Father's work, or you might say the Father's will, either one. So that you can, and I chose that word intentionally, do his will. Because it's a matter of ability. Can, should, different words, you know that, right? Jesus did the Father's work so that you can do his will. Now, let's get our, get our, our bearings here for a moment. We've just finished the, the, uh, the account of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. Uh, and he's revealed to her that he's the Messiah. She's going away to tell the good news to uh, the people of Sychar, and now they're coming out to meet him. They're believing in him, so you really have uh, this almost pre-evangelism going on here where some are coming out to believe he's the Messiah. She believed. She's converted. She tells the good news to others like a good Christian ought, and now she's really the first missionary, I guess, in some ways, and so she comes out. The people of Sychar come out to see him, but before that happens, the disciples have come back, They've got food. They went out to get food. Jesus has been here. He's not eating. He said, you need to eat. That was my grandmother. My grandmother, I love my grandmother. I can still hear her saying, hey, I come to her house after school. Jeffrey, you need to eat. You know, they called me Jeffrey back in those days. Jeffrey, you need to eat, right? And the disciples are concerned that Jesus hasn't eaten. And so they, he said, they said, you need to eat, all right? And they're urging him, caring for him, loving for him, rabbi. And Jesus answered. He responded as only Jesus could. He didn't say, no, thank you. I'm full. No, I'm good. Somebody brought me something. He said, if you knew the gift of God, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, let me skip down. I'm, I'm in the wrong place here. Um, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And they think, of course, like we would, it's almost humorous, isn't it? 
It's almost funny, like, oh, well, somebody's running food. He's got some, you know, he's got some, uh, you know, beef jerky or something, maybe a hot dog. Somebody's brought him this, you know, like, you know, he stopped at a convenience store on the way to wherever, like we always seem to. But no. He said, I have food to eat you know not about. No, and they don't get it, right? Of course, we... We saw this with Nicodemus. He said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, back in chapter 3, Nicodemus is like, i got to go back in my mother's womb and come out again. What, what do you mean, born again? And of course, Jesus explained the new birth, uh, regeneration, how we are, how every sinner in the history of the world has been saved only by regeneration. And opening our eyes, unstopping our, our blind eyes, unstopping our deaf ears, and bringing us, drawing us to himself. We talked about that. Of course, the woman at the well was, you know, beyond confused when Jesus said, I've got water, you know, not on. It's like, really? You didn't bring anything to draw with? Where's your water? He said, it's living water, well up into you into eternal life. And he's speaking, of course, the Spirit of God, a regeneration, or speaking of, of a redemption there, of what he's come to do. And so he says it again. I have food to eat you know not about. And then he explains. And this is where we're going to spend our entire time, because I think there's just so much in here. And honestly, I feel like I'm just going to scratch the surface. There's so much in the Word of God, isn't there? I mean, you could spend your whole, I mean, books have been written on this verse which is once I got to it, started teasing it, I thought I could preach for two hours on verse, uh, verse 38. I won't do that. I'll resist that, that urge. But my food is to do the will of him who sent to me. And then he says this. Okay, that's good. But And to accomplish his work. To do the will of him, the father who sent him, the father sent the son, right? To do his will and to do his work. Will and work. Well, there's a lot of theology, a lot of good stuff for our, uh, for our nourishment in there. And so we're going to try to unpack that here briefly. It's pretty succinct what Jesus said here. The food he was talking about was not physical, but spiritual. Just like the new birth, just like the living water. Spurgeon calls Jesus' response a golden sentence. And it is a golden sentence. You're a writer like I am and you like concise statements. Well, man, that's a concise statement. I have food to eat, you know, not uh, about through the Father's will and work. And Spurgeon calls this a golden sentence because these words were the keynote of Jesus' life. This is what it was about. This is why he came. Why did Jesus come? Well, this is it. Jesus tells us that this himself, and of course this, this has bearing since he is fully God and he is, or fully man, and he is our, our not only our representative, but also our, uh, you know, our, our model for Christian living, then we must follow him as well. And so that's kind of how we get to, how, how we want to apply this today. But this is the essence of Jesus' life, the purpose for his existence, to carry out the plan of God the Father sent him to do. And perhaps most important for us, Jesus' words tell us that doing God's will gives complete and utter satisfaction. It satisfied him doing God's will, and if you do God's will, it will satisfy you. In fact, I would argue on the authority of this verse this morning that the only thing in life that will give you utter and complete satisfaction and peace in your heart and like I said earlier, the ability to have a, a holy composure no matter what kind of suffering you're walking through is to be in a mad pursuit always, 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 daily for the will of God. You say, well, that's really simple. Well, as Pastor Doug loves to say, this ain't rocket science, right? Or else I wouldn't be here. I'm no rocket scientist. And you can say, well, you can say that again. But that's it. He came to do the will of the Father, and it's his will that we do his will. 
Ah, but you say, I can't. And you're right. And that's the second part of this equation. I came to do not just his will, but his work. And that's the enabling power. And I've kind of given it away already, right? So don't, don't tune out on me. But he, that's why I said Jesus did the Father's work so that you can do his will. So that you have the power to do his will. So let's look at these two things, verse 34, separately. Jesus came to do the Father's will. Now, doing the Father's will is a major theme of John's gospel. We're going to see this again and again and again. So if you miss it this morning, don't miss it. But if you do, we're going to come back to it. John 5, 30. I can do nothing of my own, Jesus said. But as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, the judgment's perfect, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In other words, the, the, the Trinity, the, the, the persons of the Godhead, they're not on some, they don't have different, uh, you know, different missions. They have one mission, and that's it. One mission, and one mission only, to do the will of him who sent me. That's what Jesus came for. John 6, 38 and 39. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Here it is. Here's the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up the last day. What does the Father give to the Son? Does he give him an inheritance? He does. Is it money? No. It's you. It's the church, it's God's people, it's God's elect, it's Christians, it's sinners saved by his grace. That's right. And he's not going to lose any of them. You want, a, you want a verse for perseverance of the saints? Well, right there it is. If you're in Christ, he's not going to lose you. I won't lose one of them, he said. You know, it's not like he's got 99 marbles, he's going to drop one. Well, I don't know where that went. No, he's going to keep you. And that's not what the sermon's about, but that's a good aside. John 7, 16 and 17. These are just representative. This is the last one. There's others, we'll, as we shall see in the coming months, Lord willing. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. In other words, I'm just here to do God's word, what the Father sent me. And if you will do his will, the only thing that will be right will be for you to do God's will. Right? They are not working across purposes of each other. And his will is to do the Father's will. And your, his will for you is that you do the Father's will. We're going to see what that is here in just a moment. A little more expansively. So Jesus came to do the Father's will. I love the illustration James Montgomery Boyce used. The late James Montgomery Boyce. Wonderful. Wonderful preacher of God's word. I think we've forgotten about him sometimes. But wow. Uh, if you use commentaries, look at his. Fantastic. He uses a good illustration con contrasting the desire of God's will, the, or the, God's will for Jesus versus the disobedience of Satan. Because, let me, and, and here's why I think this is important. And I hope you're listening to this. When you get right down to it, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Yes, there's lost people and found people. But really, you're following after. This morning, you're either following the will of God or the will of the devil. And one of them is your father. And you say, well, boy, that's kind of, that's kind of uh, you know, unkind for you to say my father's the devil. Well, Jesus said that about the Pharisees. You're, you're your father the devil. And if you're outside of Christ, that's who you're following. You're doing his will and his bidding, or you're in Christ, you're doing God's bidding. And that's really, it's simple, isn't it? Scripture is very clear about that. So this morning, you're doing one or the other. You're not sort of in with one foot, sort of lukewarm, you know, sort of in here and the things of God and sort of over here. Uh-uh. It's one or the other. That's really it. So I think this is, this is useful, this contrast. 
Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, I'll read it in a moment, but tells of, of the thoughts that entered Satan's mind at the moment of his revolt against God and the results, eventual results of his rebellion. I think this speaks to the fall of Satan. And it could have a, a, a ring for Babylon. There's commentators disagree, but this is what I think I agree with voice on this. But Satan desired to do his own will rather than God's, which led to his dissatisfaction and his fall and his eventual will lead to his judgment, his final judgment on that day of judgment. Isaiah 14, 12 to 15 says this, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. You have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. This is what Satan, beautiful creator being said of God. I will be king. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mountain of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. Ambitious cuss, wasn't he? But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Satan's ambitions were to be God. He desired to climb above the station which God had called him. I mean, he had already been given the highest position probably any created being had ever attained, and yet it was not enough for him. He wanted to be king. He wanted to be sovereign. And this is a helpful illustration because I would argue, again, on the authority of Scripture, I would argue that there's two kinds of people. Either you, God will be sovereign in your life, or you will want to be sovereign over your own life. And that describes some of you this morning beyond the shadow of a doubt. You want to be king, and you want to be sovereign, just like your father, the devil. And I say that as, in as solemn a manner as I possibly can because it, it's, it's serious business. You realize heaven and hell hang in the balance every Sunday morning when we're doing this? Satan will stop at nothing to keep the word of God from being proclaimed from this pulpit and all the faithful pulpits across this globe. Satan, Satan wanted to be king. He wanted his own will, not God's will. He would rise into heaven above the stars and sit above the clouds and reign over everything to be king. In our fallen state, I would argue that's what we want, to be sovereign. It's like what I heard Gene Simmons, the, one of the leaders of the rock band Kiss, say one time. He was being interviewed and someone said, if you were to meet God, what would you say to him? Because I asked him, do you believe in God? And he said, well, you know, I believe in a higher being, something like that. So what would you say to him if you saw him? And he said this, I'll never forget this. He said, I would say, excuse me, but I believe you're in my seat. Now, he didn't mean he was tired and wanted to sit down from playing at a rock concert, right? No, he meant, you're in the seat because I am king. And before we descend into self-righteousness and Pharisees and say, man, that, that's terrible, boy. You just, that, what, what awful rock star. That's who we are in our fallenness and sometimes in, our, in being redeemed because when we want our will and not God's will, then that's what we are arguing. It's just the, the first sin, right? Has God really said? Has he? I mean, Satan's pursuit of his own will was, was tragic. It plunged all of humanity into fallen, a fallen state. Look at what happened. I mean, it, we're now captive to sin because of his rebellion. He persuaded Adam and Eve to take the forbidden fruit, eating the forbidden fruit, resulted in the curse over all of creation. And Satan was cursed to lick the dust all the days of his life. This is the result of his rebellion, seeking his own will and not God's will. 
I mean, Isaiah describes Satan's end. He says, but you are brought down to the grave, out to the depths, into the depths of the pit. His rebellion, the devil's rebellion, Satan, Mephistopheles, whatever we want to call him, and its outcomes show the awful consequences when we choose to live in accord with our own will and not the will of God the Father. Apart from the will of God, Satan exalted his own will and brought nothing but misery to himself and misery on others. Our sin has consequences not just on ourselves, but others. Since Satan's fall, yes, it was terrible for him, but it's been terrible for us. And it is your sin as well. You choose to do your own will, it's going to affect the people around you. To which I would say, how selfish of you, right? But that's who we all are. I, I say that, I'm saying that to myself. Because that's what we need to be liberated from, rescued from by God's grace. I mean, by contrast, Jesus submitted himself to God's will and found nothing but blessing for himself and for others. You see that? Look what, look what redemption, look what his redemption has done for us. We're the church thousands of years later. Here we are. God's redeemed, regenerated people. We're the results of his obedience to God, the Father's will right here. Right here. I mean, I look around and see you, and I know your lives, and you're just, your lives are delightful. They're a delight to me because I know you love the Lord. I know you're living in accord with his will. But only because of what? Because Jesus kept the Father's will. Look what he says in Philippians 2, 6 to, to 10. Very well-known well verse. This is what Jesus said about doing the Father's will. He said, who... I'll start in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because he did this, because he submitted to the will of the Father, the work of the Father, as we'll see in a moment, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. How glorious. This is the outcome of Jesus' following the Father's will. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and have heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus obeyed the Father and became king. Satan would want, wanted to be king, wanted his own will, and he's fallen. All the way down to the pit. Well, you read the book of Revelation, you see what's going to happen to him at the end of time, cast into the, the, the fiery lake with his, his demons, his minions, and his, his army, never to rise again. So Jesus came, did the work, did the will of the Father, which was to live a sinless life, was summarized it this way to live a sinless life, to keep the law of God perfectly, that you broke, that I broke. To render perfect obedience to God's law and to redeem his sinful people. That's why he came. Very simple. Very, very simple. Very, very simple. I mean, do you, you see the benefits of submitting our lives to God's will? I mean, without God's grace, we don't want to do his will, do we? And sometimes, as God's redeemed people, we don't want to do his will when his will is, as we perceive it, difficult. We need God's grace. Do you say that your food, 
the thing that satisfies you most is doing the will of God. That's what Jesus is saying here. You understand that? It's, it's his food. I don't, need, I don't need your hot dog or your hamburger. I don't need your whatever you brought back from the store. I need to do the will of God. Most all. That satisfies me above everything else. Do we say our food is to do the will of God? Are our lives surrendered to his will as Jesus' was? What is God's will for your life? Well, I'm going to answer that very simply. I, I think, I believe I took, I think I borrowed this from our, our dear brother John MacArthur. Five S's. God wants you saved. If you're here today and you don't know him as Lord and Savior, God wants all who will call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. This is good, acceptable, and perfect uh, in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This morning, as I said last week, the invitation is come. The spirit of the bride say come, it's come. Remember we saw that in the woman with the well, she said come. And all through the Bible how the invitation is always come. Jesus said come all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Are you weary and heavy laden this morning? Come to Jesus. The invitation at Christ Fellowship, Baptist Church, every Sunday is come. Come. Come to Jesus. He stands ready, willing to save you, full of pity, joined with power as we gloriously sing in that great hymn. He wants you saved. Two, he wants you spirit-filled. And if you're saved, you'll be spirit-filled. Ephesians 5, 17 and 18. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for it is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. When you were saved, the Spirit of God came to live inside you. He unzipped you and climbed inside of you and now lives inside you and dwells you. Romans 8, 9 says, if anyone, Paul says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. I heard people say, pray for God, begging God to send your Spirit, send your Spirit, as if we get him in doses. Right? A little bit of the Spirit, a little dose. No, no, no. If you're a Christian, he lives inside you and you have all the resources you need. How do I know that? Well, Colossians 2.10. Again, Paul said, in him you have been made complete. And there's a theology out there that says, well, what you do, there's sort of the, you know, the small Christians and the supersized Christians. You know, the McDonald's ask if you want to be supersized. And of course, man, their fries always want to be supersized, don't you? Well, they are sort of the supersized Christian. They've got more of the Holy Spirit than there's those who have sort of less of the Holy Spirit. And that's, they kind of feel sorry for the rest of us, right? You'll find that nowhere in Scripture. You are complete in Him. You have the resources, Christian. And maybe you're not just tapping into this. The Spirit of God lives inside you. You have what you need to live a godly life, to have joy, abundant joy, no matter what's happening in your life. And of course, I mean, you do not need to ask for the Spirit. You have Him already, but there's a sense in which we yield more and more, and I think that's, uh, we do yield ourselves more and more to His influence and His work in our lives, right? We yield ourselves more. We submit ourselves more to the Spirit who always already lives inside of us. So that we're spirit-filled? Are you yielding to him? Are you yielding to his work today? Are you putting sin to death? Or are you giving in to sin? Are you, do you have pet sins that you don't want to see crucified because, you know, that'll take the fun out of your life? Be spirit-filled. Be thirdly sanctified, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 7. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. 
that each of you, each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, and Gentiles here, I don't mean a race of people, it's more of a, a euphemism for lost people. Gentiles who do not know God, again he just defines it there, that no one transgress and wrong his brother, or in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, or God has called, called us for purity, not impurity, but in holiness. He's not called you to live an impure life, but in holiness. That you, you commit your body to Him. Are you a young person? A young person, you say, well, boy, you know, it's no fun to, to not indulge the desires of the flesh. When it comes to uh, maybe uh, drinking or drugs or sexual uh, intimacy, no, we're called to live, uh, our bodies to be living sacrifices, to live in purity and holiness, and that's a big part of it. That's what he said. That, that's what Paul says that, that he said, we need to know how to control our own body and holiness. That's what we're called to. So it's God's will that you be saved, that you be spirit-filled, you be sanctified. Again, we're all S's here. Fourthly, you be submissive. And by that I mean submissive to the authorities around us. You say, oh boy. And no, we're not going to talk about COVID again. We're past that. Praise God talking about that. But it did raise this discussion, didn't it? 1 Peter 2, 3, 13 to 15. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise for those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. In other words, we are to live exemplary lives as citizens of this world in order to silence the critics who are watching for you as God's people to stumble. They're watching so they can say, well, there's nothing but a bunch of hypocrites down there at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. They're watching so they can scoff at you and laugh at you. We're called to live lives in submission to every human institution which God has established. So we live in accord to the laws of the land. As long as those laws don't ask us to violate God's word, God's will, we live in submission to it. And i got to be honest with you, we really embarrassed ourselves during covid with the fights and the all-out war we had over masks, over shots. I mean, Doug deals with a whole lot of different, Pastor Doug, a lot of different churches. This is just <laughs> churches everywhere went to war over these things within the church and with their pastors who, you know, because of a policy or lack of policy or whatever, we really just embarrass ourselves and how we interface with the government when they ask us to do something or not do something. In terms of we took hardline stances on things that the Bible takes no hardline stances on. Got to be careful, don't we? The world sees that and they think, you guys are crazy. Got to be careful, don't we? That our witness is not sullied by these, these convictions we have that aren't biblical. But live lives above reproach toward outsiders so that they see our good works and give glory to God in heaven. So it's God's will you be saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, and suffering. First Peter 4.19 writes about those who, all, who suffer according to the will of God. The call to the Christian life is not a call to ease. It's not a call to safety. 
We love to be safe. Again, COVID exposed this, didn't it? Boy, we want to be safe. We live in a fallen world, a dangerous, dangerous world. It's not safe. And it's not safe to be a Christian. Acts 14, 22. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. A call to Christianity is not a call to a feather bed, as Spurgeon put it. Right? To snooze your life away in ease and comfort and, and uh, prosperity. No, we're going to get into the kingdom. Why? Because the sons of darkness, the sons of Satan, they don't like us. And there's a war that started in Genesis 3 that goes on every single day. You're going to be persecuted for being a Christian. Because I don't think the kind of suffering here is in view in scriptures, sickness or broken relationships, but suffering for our faith. And we live in America, we've been spoiled. But let me tell you something, beloved, I think it's coming. And it may be here. When we can't say that a man is a man and a woman is a woman and that... That's it. Without controversy, it's coming. Because Scripture says, male and female, he made them. In the image of God, he made them. And that's it. Right? And we believe that because Scripture says that. But to say that now is, a controver- is controversial. It's not going to be easy. And I hate to say this, but I think it's going to be good for us. Because we've been at ease in Zion far too long, haven't we? So the call calling to Christ, calling to suffer, because that's the way of the Calvary road, isn't it? What did Jesus do? He came to suffer, and so will we. To give the world a picture of our suffering, though it doesn't save anybody, it gives them a picture of the very gospel we proclaim and claim to believe, that we've trusted in our own salvation. So if you're saved and you're spirit-filled and you're sanctified, being sanctified, submissive, suffering, if these things are in line, then as Augustine said, the great church father said, Love God and do what you will. What's God's will for my life? If you're doing all those things, do what you will. As it doesn't violate scripture, and you'll be in God's will. Then you'll know who to marry and who to, what college to go to. You'll know what to do and what not to do. If you're doing those things, yeah, that, that's pretty much it, right? Love God and do what you will. That's good advice. If we obey His revealed will, we'll, we'll be living as God intended. There's hundreds of other verses in scripture about the commands about God's will in our lives, but here are just two more. Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men so they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And maybe the best known among us, we all love Romans. I love Romans. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And because that's true, because he says this, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. You see how that works, what I've just said? If, you're, if, you're, if you know the will of God, you're studying his word, you're walking with God, you're going to know your mind is going to be transformed. You're going to have the mind of Christ just as he spoke of back in Philippians 2. And so you're going to know what the, what the will of God is. What is good and acceptable and perfect, you're going to know. Because you're going to be being transformed. And so you're going to know what his will is in, a, in most given situations. Or at least what your choices are. And providentially, he's going to guide you, right? I mean, too many people say they're seeking God's will as direction for their lives, but they've missed out on the most fundamental part of it. They're not living in submission to God in the first place. And so if they're not, that's going to be a lot more confusing. (laughs) 
They're not living in submission to God's will as has been revealed in as it has been revealed in His Word. And so, finding God's will is going to be kind of a shell game because they're not living in God's according to God's revealed will in the first place. Saved, sanctified, spirit-filled, submissive, suffering. They're hungry and dissatisfied because they're not feeding on divine food. Are you feeding on divine food? Or do you come here hungry this morning and do you leave just dissatisfied with the answers we've given? Well, you can, you can reject it all you want to. You're not going to find satisfaction in no matter how much money or success or notoriety you gain in this world. You will not find satisfaction. Because here's the question. The real question that helps us examine our hearts on this issue is, do you find contentment in doing the will of God? There's the word, contentment. What is contentment? Well, you know, I love Jeremiah Burroughs, the old Puritan. I love his definition. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, that's where I get holy composure from, H-O-L-Y, composure. Sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. It is the inward submission of the heart. I'm going to read that again. Contentment, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to God and delights in His wise and fatherly disposal in every condition, every circumstance. It is the inward submission of the heart. Michael Scott Horton summarized that definition this way. Being content with life means accepting the circumstances in which God's providence has placed me and being happy, happy in Jesus, right? No matter what you're going through right now. And I've talked to some of you, things you go through, and I am so encouraged. And I tell you this, when you say, we're trusting the Lord, we're happy, we're doing this. And I know uh, some of you have been through some things recently you've shared with me, and boy, I'm just thrilled. You're, you're just happy in Jesus. Because you're trusting in His will. You're trusting that He knows He's not an amateur, He's not a novice, He knows what He's doing. Because he knows his will perfectly, and, and, and you want to walk in it. Jesus came to do the Father's will, fulfill the law perfectly, live a sinless life, right? And this is tied to the person of Christ. Jesus is fully God and fully man, perfect man. What about us? What about you? You say, this sounds really, really difficult, Pastor Jeff. I'm not sure I can do this. And you're right. You're right, but there's good news here. Right? What is the secret to a genuine, fulfilling, godly life? Well, I think it's absolute submission to the divine will and contentment in doing, doing it because those are the dynamics of Christ's life. I think that's the, the secret for us. Is this true of you? Is joy and peace and contentment, is that evident in your life? I mean, if not, what, what, are you, what are you feasting on? Are the empty pleasures of this world, maybe entertainment, maybe your phone? Man, go to a restaurant and everybody is on their phone. I wonder if they're talking to each other, you know. They're waiting in the lobby, they're on their phones, you know. They're not talking, they're on their phones. They're probably texting each other right here beside me, you know. I'm probably doing the same thing. We do this, don't we? If aliens ever saw that, they'd think, what has happened to these people, Right? We're feasting on that. That's why our hearts are, are given to that. Even at church, we can't stay away from this, can we? For 45 minutes. Worldly amusements, notoriety, success, whatever it is, that's, that's where you're finding your satisfaction. You will not find it because you're feeding to, 
to use one of my, my favorite, but paraphrase one of my favorite books of the Bible, you're feeding on the wind. And the wind is not going to satisfy you. The only food that will last is doing God's will and God's work. This must be our priority here at Christ Fellowship. If we're to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, we're saved to conform to his will and to do his work. I love the way the preacher puts it at the end of Ecclesiastes. And this, this you know, I just love this book. It's this book God used to call me to ministry. Ecclesiastes. You're like, man, that's a confusing book. <laughs> well, I used to be a confused person, so confused book for confused people like me. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. The end of the book, this is what he, he concludes. He, he tries everything. He tries parting. He, tries, he lived the life of a rock star. And he tried money, he tried women, he tried music, he tried building big buildings, he tried riches, he tried everything because he had the money to do it. Probably the wealthiest man in the world history, King Solomon. He tried it all. His conclusion was this. It left him empty, it left him chasing after the wind. That's all the phrases all through Ecclesiastes, chasing after the wind. Friends, many of you are chasing after the wind this morning and you're never going to catch the wind. Never. Unless you listen to Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to 14. My brother, before he died, my brother Rex did his funeral five weeks ago. We talked about this verse like three months. One of the last conversations we had about this verse. He's talking about what I'm talking about right now. Love that. <laughs> good, way to, good way to end your time together, right? Love that. Here's what he says. The end of the matter. All has been heard. All the evidence of his life has been laid out. How he's been this mad pursuit of true pleasure. This is all of this been laid out. All has been heard. The evidence before the court has been presented. What's the verdict? Here it is. The court's verdict, Solomon's verdict, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring in every deed into judgment. There's coming a payday someday, maybe today. And every secret thing, whether good or evil. So fear God and keep his commandments. Westminster Catechism, Shorter Catechism puts it this way. Love God or glorify God and join him forever. Chief end of man, glorify God and join him forever. It's another way of saying the same thing. That truth changed my life right there. Right there. Back in 1996 or something. Man, oh man, oh man. I'm still thinking about that. The whole duty of man. All of it. Do the will of God. In other words, what Jesus come, came to do, you must do. And you can't do it. The only way you can do it, and this is my last point, very briefly here, only way you can do God's will is because of what Jesus did. Without God's grace, without the work Jesus came to do, you are hopeless. I mean, think about what he, quickly what he said here. Back to our passage, verse 34. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and, and what? To accomplish his work. Man, there's a whole systematic theology in there. I'm not going to give you that. Just some highlights here, though. Jesus came to accomplish God's work so that you might do his will. By his grace and for his glory. Jesus is anticipating the cross when he says, my food is to accomplish his work. He's anticipating the cross. He's going to the cross. Relentlessly, his life is leading to the cross. No, no crown without a cross. Because the same word was used when Jesus cried the cross. It is finished. In verse, chapter 19, verse 30 of John. It is finished. Most glorious three words in all of the English, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic language. It is finished. 
Jesus came to redeem all whom the Father gave to him, came to redeem sinners in his work at Calvary. That's what he's alluding to here. That's the work. He's the incarnate Son of God. We always view his work with that as the background. Always, he's Son of God, Son of Man. He became incarnate, took on human flesh for this particular task, the redemption of his people, so that you can live according to his will. Without that, you're hopeless. You're going to go your own way. You're going to follow Satan. You're going to do just like him. You're going to be raised up, be the morning, try to be the morning star of glory. You're going to fail miserably, and you're going to be miserable. And you're going to face destruction in the end, in hell. How do we bring all the parts of Jesus' work concisely in about two minutes here? Well, I think Reformed Orthodoxy rescues us. I love a concise way to think about Jesus' work on our behalf. Think about Christ as our mediator. This is what he came to be right here in John. He's becoming the mediator. We needed a lawyer. You need an attorney. We, you know, we threaten to sue each other all the time. You're going to need an attorney. Well, the truth is, if you're lost, you need an attorney to go before God and say, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, Robinson here, yeah, he's not guilty. But the problem is Robinson is guilty without an attorney, right, without a mediator. And Jesus has come to say, to die in your place for your sins, to pay, to bear the, the wrath that you should have borne, to bear your guilt, to bear your shame, to bear all your sins away, taking on the punishment we deserved on himself so that he can say, no, judge, Robinson's not guilty. I have taken his sentence upon myself. The death sentence his sins deserved, he's not guilty. So you need that mediator that pleads for you before the throne of God and says, my righteousness stands in his place. He's been declared righteous. Let the sinner go free. You need a mediator. There's a lot bound up in that. He came to do his work according to threefold offices of Christ. Again, this is Reformed theology at its best, I think. Christ came to be our final prophet, priest, and king. Why do I, why do I summarize it that way? Because that summarizes the whole Old Testament and the work of the New Testament. Chapter 8 of the 1689 Second London Confession provides us a succinct summary. He says, this number and order of offices is necessary. The offices of Christ is necessary. For in respect of our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetical office. We are ignorant. We need a prophet to tell us, repent. Judgment is coming. Repent and be reconciled to God. We need a prophet. We have a prophet, the final prophet. And in respect from our alienation of our alienation from God and imperfection of our the best of our works, we need his priestly office to reconcile us, present us acceptable unto God. We need a high priest that gets back to the mediator to stand between us and God and make a sacrifice for our sins. He has done it, the full and final sacrifice. So we have the prophet, the final prophet. We have the final priest who's done it, who says it is finished. And it goes on. And in respect to our averseness and utter inability to return to God, in other words, we're averse, we don't want to go back to God, and we have an inability to return to God. And for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, the devil, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and persevere us to his heavenly kingdom. We have the great, the final prophet, we have the final priest and now we have the king he has he has drawn us to himself he has subdued us subdued our wickedness he's delivered us to the father and he will preserve us all the way till the end that's why i love this statement it's beautiful it comes from westminster originally but we baptists said we like that we need to keep that and praise god we don't talk about that enough he's our final prophet priest and king that's the work a summary of what he came to do for you how could you reject one like this? 
He's all you need, right? Because of doing the Father's will and doing the Father's work. And his work is finished on the cross. The Father sent him to do. It is finished. Nothing is left to chance. And by the way, he didn't make you savable at the cross. Like he sort of said, okay, here's the offer. And if you want to come and get it, I'll back up and just let you come and get it if you want to. Like, you know, calling the dogs or the cattle or something into hay. No, no, no. He said, no, I'm, he said, it's finished. He redeemed you. If you're in Christ, he paid your, for your sins there and then. It was, the price was paid. And you access that by faith, faith that he gave you, made you the ability to believe. You have no ability to come to Christ. None. And he didn't just put the offer out there, the candy, so you come to the dish, the children to come. No, he said, no, it, it is finished. The work he came to do, redeeming his people, he paid it all for you right then and there. He came to save his people, his elect. Doing God's will was the food of Jesus' life. Is it your food? Is it your sustenance to do God's will? Or is your life more like Satan's? You, you want to be king. You really just want what you want. And you could use God if you could get that, but God will not be used. Do not trifle with the things of God. Don't play games with the Christian faith. Psalm 48, is this the cry of your heart? The psalmist says, I delight to do your will, oh my God. I mean, we can hold the most reverent thoughts about God. We can even study theology at a seminary. We can go to church. We can even pray and read our Bibles. But if we do not surrender our will to God's will, we're going to receive very little spiritual sustenance for our hearts and our minds. Nothing. And he's the only way. And if you're lost today, I plead with you. I plead with you. Fly to here today. Come. 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 Lay aside whatever you're feeding on now and come. Come. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. The invitation is come. Are you saved? Are you spirit filled? Are you pursuing sanctification? Are you living submissive to the authorities around you so others can see you're a godly person that, that God does redeem sinners? If the gospel's true? Are you suffering from being a Christian and trusting yourself in all circumstances with holy composure to the one who loved you and gave himself for you? Run to him today. Submit your will to his and live all out for his glory. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts today. I know there are hard hearts. There are people who even think this is funny, evidently. God, I pray you'd work in their hearts to bring about repentance and faith. I pray you'd cause us, Lord, we, we're far too much satisfied with our own will and far too down the road in pursuing our own wills, Lord. I ask that you would have mercy on us and give us grace to submit ourselves to your will no matter the cost that we would have this holy composure that the world looks and sees as compelling. Father, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, Lord. We are far too prone to want what we want. We want it now. I know that's the cry in my heart far too often. Rescue us from that kind of thinking. And let us be like Jesus, who came to do your will, and by your grace came to do your work, so that we can do your will. We thank you for this text. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus calls us to delight in him today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.